Hallelujah. Many of you know that this morning we continued our thought of God's Not Dead series. And uh, we want to we want to continue on that tonight. It's good to have uh, our youth back with us. Some of them is, is is here with us tonight. Some of them had to go on home, but I know they had a long trip, and a lot of them are tired and and all of that. But I understand they had a great a great uh, great services. Uh, I believe I heard some of them say some got saved, some got filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and we give God praise. I'm afraid to give them a microphone to let them testify. Anyone any, any of y'all want to testify or just say something tonight? You look like you want to. Come on, say something. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I'm in sweatpants, y'all. It was a long drive, but it was really, really awesome. I, I was uh, fasting this whole week. Uh, I've been seeking the Holy Ghost, and I've been a preacher's daughter for 18 years, and I never got it until yesterday. So, I thank, uh, I thank God for everything he's done, and I thank God for leading me here to this church because I've had so many opportunities to, you know, go further in my walk with God, and I've walked so much closer to him because of this church, because of the awesome youth leaders and the awesome friends that I've made here, and I feel like God put them in my life because I needed them. I need them right now in my life because I wasn't this close to God. And for a while, you know, I kind of kind of was just pushing myself away. And now I feel like I'm on the right path again. And I just, I thank you and I thank everybody here for supporting me and letting me go. And I love y'all. <laughs> like, <laughs> Amen. Anybody else? I'm just giving you opportunity. It's because I talked to y'all one time. Y'all just think. You know, saying I'm an everyday thing. <laughs> no, really. Um, you know, I've been going to Winterfest my whole life, it seems like, with Dad being a pastor, and he used to be on the youth board and everything. But this Winterfest in particular was definitely one of the most spiritual outbreaks that I've ever really seen. And I know Beth has been one. I'm about to cry, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> but I know Beth has been the Holy Spirit all weekend. And so, and I know how she feels. Like, I didn't get it till last summer. And I've been here since I could, you know, the womb. But <laughs> I always joke that I was probably in service, like, the next day after I was born. <laughs> But no, it's okay. But yeah, there was um, one song that the band sang, and one of the, the lines was, you know, leave me astounded and leave me amazed, and we're waiting for you just for more. And that's just, it's been my prayer ever since I heard that song and all weekend. And I want to continue to seek him just to be in awe, like where I can't even explain, just like it was this weekend. I've been in amazing services, but that one, this weekend was definitely one of the most spiritual and best. And y'all... They ain't here so I can say it. <laughs> a lot of the kids at Remix, you know, they don't really participate because, you know, they think they're too cool. But a lot of the kids that went, they actually participated and they got saved and filled. And it was amazing, y'all. Like, never seen anything like it. But I'm going to Thank you. Amen. Gabby? 
You might as well come and say something. You're the only one left, I think. <laughs> well, for one, I want to apologize. I'm in blue jeans, and I'm never in blue jeans on Sunday, so it feels kind of weird. But um, it was a great experience for me. It was my first time getting to go to Winterfest. And um, I went, like, me and Beth and Hannah, we all fasted for this week. And um, I was fasting to realize what my calling in ministry is. And that's a really, really big thing on my life at the moment. I didn't get it. The first night, it really, really hit me. Like, I cried and cried and cried. I just understand. But um, we got to our room, and I got to talking with Abby and Beth and Lana and Hannah. And I realized... I may feel like I'm spiritually ready yet, but I know there's more areas in my life that I'm not ready yet for. And one thing is I'm really bad about having patience. I'm a planner. I have to know what's going on tomorrow, next week, next year. I'm just like my mama, and it's bad. And so <laughs> I say that because she's not here at the moment. <laughs> but um, then the second night, um, we got down there at the altar, and... I ended up, I kind of felt selfish because I want it to be about me this weekend. But then we got to the altar and I realized it was Beth's, you know, it was all important to her to become, to get the Holy Spirit and be filled with it. Because I've been filled for almost six years now and I love it. And I knew how important it was to her to get it. So I put myself aside for the night and I focused in on her until Abby pulled me away and told me to go get it. But <laughs> I didn't get it. I couldn't find it out there anywhere. But it's out there. Because one thing we realized um, Friday night is that you may have something you want to happen in your life, but just remember God did it. You may not see it coming, but he's on his way. You may not see what's happening tomorrow, but just know that the path you're on now, God's got you there for a reason. And he's teaching you different areas like patience for me. And so, uh, like I said, I didn't get what I wanted this weekend, but what I got out of it was patience. And he gave me peace, and that's something I really needed that I didn't realize I needed that bad. But, th I mean, the best thing about it is that, like I said, I know how to speak in tongues, and I know, understand it, but I can, kind of, I can speak in tongues, but it's not, like, it's hard to explain, but um, I'm not fully, like, you can't understand it completely, but I know I'm doing it. But last night I got to speaking in tongues, and I thought I had a Ph.D. in another language. It was that good. I was so proud of myself. And so that's what I got out of this weekend, and I'm glad. And so I was still so excited about this. I'm sorry if I'm taking your time. But um, I was so excited this morning. I still woke up, and I was excited, and I was happy. I went to knock on Kayla's door, and I asked where she was at. I thought if I start speaking in tongues again, I went, and then I caught myself, and I thought, no, I can't do it this morning. It's too early for that. I'll be waking up people in the hallways. But... It was a great experience, and I'm glad that I went, and um, I just can't wait for next year. Hey, man, I know they had a, they had a wonderful time, and it's, it's good to have them tonight. It's ratchet looking as they look tonight. You know, it's, it's, still, it's still good to have them. <laughs> and their blue jeans and sweatpants. I'm just kidding, guys. I, I knew I was going to say that and get a response out of them. <clears throat> Amen. We're going to continue with, uh, with our sermon th number three on God's Not Dead. And if you wasn't here this morning, we're sorry you wasn't here. Uh, to, to understand, we talked about God being alive and God is real. Amen. Uh, is, is, is anybody cold? I see some folks. Are you cold or comfortable? Is it chilly in here? Well, one of the... 
All right, one of the uh, one of the ushers will just work. Look on, just look at one thermostat, I guess, and maybe that'll help curb the curb the coolness. I'm fine myself, but uh, Mavis looks like she's about to freeze to death tonight. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. <clears throat> we want to talk tonight about the truth of God's word, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the Bible. And we want to deal with, with that thought tonight. Now, how many knows that the Bible is a unique, very unique book uh, that we look at, we read about, we study? Matter of fact, actually, it's, it's a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors who were from 13 countries on three separate continents of Asia and Europe and Africa. We're talking about the authenticity of the Bible and how all these, these words and scriptures and books and all of these come about to be together. It claims to be the Word of God in the scriptures over 72 or 2,700 times. And it has been translated about 1,500 into 1,500 languages. From this book comes all the information that we have about God, Jesus, heaven, hell, salvation, and eternity. Matter of fact, it contains numerous fulfilled prophecies with about various men's and nations down through the ages and more importantly it contains over 300 prophecies that declare that the Messiah was going to come to earth to live he's going to come to earth to die and to rise from the dead it is truly one of the most powerful powerful works of literature ever written and here's the problem the enemy hates it Satan hates it. He's been trying to stomp it out. Matter of fact, you heard uh, last Sunday that in 1963, we, we outlawed the Bible reading in our public school system. And you saw all the graphs that I showed you last Sunday about the decline of a lot of different things in our nation. Here's the thing. If, if it was just a history book, if it was just a collection of rules or, or regulation, then the enemy probably wouldn't be too bothered by it. But this is God's book. This is the roadmap to heaven. This has the answers to every situation, every problem that you ha might have, uh, have tonight because this is God's book. It's his truth. And this truth of God has the power within its pages to change life after life after life about all kinds of things. You've heard some of the, of the testimonies from the young people tonight about how many of them uh, got salvation and some received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and some understood what patience was all about and, and God showed them all kinds of different things but we know that this Bible here this book is the truth of Almighty God that was given to us as a guide map as a road map so to speak in order for us to get to this place to the place that he's prepared for us amen, amen. now I want to tell you a little story tonight there was a there was a little boy about 12 years old and this little boy was deeply, deeply impressed by a great preacher by the name of Ken Mathis. He just, for some reason, this little guy fell in love with this evangelist. He, he just, he wanted to mimic everything that this evangelist uh, had to say or had to do or anything like that. I mean, he was, he, 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 he was the embodiment of everything that this little 12-year-old boy wanted to be when he grew up. Matter of fact, he already purposed in his heart, Sister Langley, that, that I'm going to be a preacher just like, just like Ken Mathis. That's what I want to do. I want to be a preacher just like this guy. But when he graduated high school, his brother, his older brother, convinced him to go to a secular college for a couple of years. And he said, since I respected my, my brother and since my dad was willing to foot the bill, I went ahead and I went to this secular college. And he said my brother was absolutely right. He said it was a great experience. I learned a whole lot while I was there. 
And one of the most important things, uh, things I learned concerned the Bible, and he was interested in that. He said, you see, when I was a young man, I grew up in a college town. He said, I really love and I still love that town. But being in a college town, it had its share of people who was more impressed with the wisdom of men than they were concerning the wisdom of Almighty God. And he said, without even realizing it, I picked up some very worldly attributes towards Scripture. He said, I had heard and had come to believe that the Bible was just a boring book. He said, I had learned and come to believe that the Bible was filled with all kinds of errors. And he said, so he found himself in a Bible or a secular college far away from mom, far away from dad, far away from home, far away from the church that he had grew up in. And he had come face to face with those beliefs that were not consistent of being a preacher, that were not consistent of of his upbringing and those things that he learned. He also said that he come face to face with the fact that he never really determined for himself if those secular attitudes toward God's word was true or were they not true. He also said that his first objective, he wanted to see if the Bible was indeed a boring book. He said, I figured if I was going to be a preacher, the least I could do was read the book. I think that's a good thing to do, right? If you're going to be a preacher, if you're taking notes, put this down. If you're going to be a preacher, read the book. It's a good point. And that's what he thought. He said, I set a Bible down in my living room. He said, I set a Bible dictionary and I set a commentary out on the coffee table. And he said, I made a deal with God. He said, Lord, I'll read it if and when that you would give me the desire to do so. Put a fleece before the Lord, in other words. He said, I also told God I wasn't going to read the prophecies. I'm not going to read the poetry. I'm not going to read who who beget who and and who beget that and all of that. And he said, I was just trying to make a deal with God. And how many knows that sometimes making a deal with God can be a dangerous thing. He said, but I believe that God overlooked my ignorance and had mercy on me in this particular point and place in my life. He said, in less than a month, I had read all the way through the Bible, not, not, the, not the prophecies or anything, but everything else I read all the way through. And he said, I found out that the Bible was not a boring book at all. In fact, he said it was wonderful and it was quite exciting, the things that he was reading. It was filled with people. It was filled with situations that I could understand and I could identify with. But then he said, I had to confront the more serious question. And the question was this. I had to find out that if the Bible was filled with errors just like the people I had listened to say if it was. I've got to find out for myself if it was really filled with errors. And then he said to himself, well, here I am. I'm at a secular college and there has to be somebody at this secular college who rejects scripture and would have a few inaccuracies that they knew of. He said, so I set out looking for those individuals and I found that there was a whole bunch of people, many of them who were professors, who were more more than willing to share their, their distaste, their, their disdain, their mistakes, all of those things that the Bible in what they said. But when he got to listening to some of those professors, some of those smart guys, he said, most of the mistakes they believed that were in scriptures turned out to be just empty accusations based upon a more personal prejudice and a preference than there were true 
inaccuracies. Most of what I heard, he said, felt like a man that was throwing mud up on a wall, trying to see how much it would stick up on the wall. It was much like somebody seeing a mayor of a town walking down the street with a pretty girl and accusing him of fooling around, when in reality it was his cousin that had just come to town and he was walking the cousin around town trying to show her the sights of the city. And then he said, there came a day, however, when I was confronted with the philosophy professor who told me something that nearly shook my faith. But ultimately, it confirmed my faith in God and confirmed my faith in the Word of God. And I'll tell you the rest of the story in just a second. What I want to do right now is simply this. I want to slow down just a little bit tonight before we get back on this story. I want to point out the fact to you tonight that the Bible is an extremely accurate book. It's an extremely accurate book. How do you know that, Pastor? When Scripture says that a city existed, for instance, in a certain spot, archaeologists have found that they can generally use the Bible like a map to find out where that city was. And they begin to dig and find archaeological finds and and excavations and all of these things. It says that when a city is destroyed in such a in such a fashion that it's just it's just exactly what the Bible said and archaeologists find that particular city. A case in point involves the city of Jericho. When the city of uh, when the when the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River, Jericho was the first city that they had to overtake and had to overcome. Back in 1990, some of you may remember this, but there was Time magazine told about an archaeological dig in Jericho. Jericho was that first city, as you remember. The Bible tells us that each day for the first six days, the 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 the, the children of Israel passed around that wall, and on the seventh day they marched around seven times and they blew horns and broke pots and all of these things and began to yell and and, and blast on their horns and the people gave out a mighty shout and the walls simply come tumbling down and when the Israelites took the city they were not uh, permitted by God to remove anything everything was to be burned when they were there to conquer other cities in Canaan sometimes God would allow them to, to take the things and take the spoil of that city to be their very own but Jericho was God's city it was the first city that they had conquered and it was belongs to God and God said I want you to burn everything matter of fact in Joshua chapter 6 verse 26 the Bible said the man who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho at the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation and at the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates in other words don't rebuild the city Now, if you do a study on Jericho, you will know that Jericho was rebuilt, but not on the same site that the original city was. Archaeologists have found and a silent witness to God's power and the Bible's accuracy concerning Jericho. You've got to understand tonight, church, that back in biblical times, when cities of that day were conquered, it was usually done in one or two ways. The invader would storm the walls and break the walls down, and they would cave in, and they would overtake the city. Or the invader would simply wait outside the city and wait till the people inside the city ran out of food, 
They would get starved. They would open up the gate and they would come out and they would go in then and take the city. You know that. You've read that before. But Time Magazine, this is not a biblical thing. Time Magazine explained that the lead archaeologist said, I found the walls had fallen in such a suggestive way of a sudden collapse. Matter of fact, many scholars think that the destruction was caused by an earthquake. In other words, the walls did not cave in. They just simply fell down. Just like the Bible said, Matter of fact, it goes on and continue to say that they found bushels of grain on the site, a thick layer of soot on the site, which supports the biblical idea that the city was burned and simply not conquered. In other words, the city had not been starved out because there were grain there. And the city had been burned to the ground as God had commanded Israel to do. And you'll find that on March the 5th, 1990 in Time Magazine if you want to go back and take a look at that. And so what are you saying then, Pastor? I'm telling you from an archaeological perspective that the Bible has always been an accurate book. It's always been a book of truth. You can bank what it says. You can take it to the bank of what it's says and although the Bible is not necessarily a technically scientific book it is always consistently upheld the modern scientific facts amen now somebody may say well what about evolution then evolution is this big thing and this this thing that we study all the time in our schools what about what about evolution does the Bible contradict that yes it does yes it does uh, this is not in my notes, but let me stop here long enough to tell you this. You, gotta, you, you, you do understand that you were not created for some blob tonight, right? I had three of you, I think, that said amen. I, that believes that. The rest of you must have been created by a blob. You, didn't, you weren't created by a big bang theory. God created you. He formed you in your mother's womb, amen, according to Psalms 139. Matter of fact, he knew you before you was even. He understood who you were. He saw down through the ages and looked at you. He understands the color of your eyes. He understands the height of you. He got the hairs of your head numbered. God understands everything that there is to know about you. Amen. Hallelujah. He understands. Now, we can talk... We could talk several Sundays concerning the weakness of evolution theory. But tonight, I simply want to focus on why evolution is not and probably will ever not ever be considered a scientific fact. They tell me that in order that a theory, for a theory to become a scientific fact, that it has to pass two significant tests. The two tests are this. Number one, it must be observable. It must be observable. And the second thing is this. It must be repeatable in a controlled setting. In a control, Now, that's not what I said. That's what the scientist says. It must be observable and it must be repeatable in a controlled setting. Evolution still fails to meet those standards. As a matter of fact, no one has ever observed one species of animal evolve into another animal. In fact, God has deliberately erected a wall between the species and cannot be breached. If you'll understand what I'm talking about, you can go to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, and we're told that God created all things according to their kinds according to Genesis 1 21 but God has created a wall between those kinds I want you to think about this how many knows that if you take a horse and a donkey you're going to get what a mule you're going to get a you're going to get a mule but once you've mated these two animals and they conceive a mule there's a problem there's something that a mule cannot do a mule cannot reproduce it's sterile 
It always works out that way. That's one of God's walls that he erected between these species. Matter of fact, there's another animal that's called a leaguer. Anybody ever heard of a leaguer? It's not a tiger. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a leaguer. But it, 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 it's a lion and a tiger. It's the offspring of a lion and a tiger. Guess what? It's sterile too. Leaguers will never have offspring because God has created the walls between those species. And when you look after a hundred years of fossil discoveries... The so-called missing links is still missing. Amen. (laughs) It's still missing. There has been no legitimate find to support the links between the species that evolutionists say should have always been there. Still missing today. They're missing simply because they do not exist. They do not exist. Evolution is still a theory. Talk about it all you want to. Think about it all you want to. But it's still a theory. It's not a fact. It's still a theory. But when the Bible deals with a scientific fact, it's it's marvelously scientific. I want you to take take the, the science of anatomy, for example. This science began in Greece by a man, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, but this man's name was Hippartius. I know that's not right. That's as close as you're going to get. Over a period of 65 years, from 161 to 126 B.C., he identified a total of 1,080 stars. It wasn't until Galileo invented the telescope in 17th century that people began to realize that there were far more stars in the skies than 1,080. Amen. But think about this. Over the years, countless stars have been counted. Countless stars have been discovered. Matter of fact, and they're not even, and they're not even, they haven't even found all of the stars yet. Hallelujah. But long before Galileo, long before that other dude, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, it declared that there were more stars than you could count. God challenged Abraham one time, and he said, Hey, Abraham, look up to the heavens and count the stars if indeed you can count them. In other words, there's too many for you to count. There's too many for you to count. Later on in Jeremiah chapter 33 verse 22, we're told that I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars and the sky as they me- as, and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Talking about science tonight. And then you can move over to the earth sciences. Matter of fact, the Bible says in the days of Job, learned men taught that the earth was supported on the backs of elephants. I don't know if y'all ever heard that in school. But learned men supported the fact that, the, that this earth was, was supported on the backs of elephants which stood on the shell of a great turtle which swam in the waters of a great sea. That's how we're supported tonight. That's what some would say, a great thinker. Things hadn't got much better by the time the, the, the philosophers of Greece come up on the scene. They said people on that day believed that a mighty titan named Atlas supported the heavens on his shoulders. You probably saw pictures of that and statues of that. But by contrast, Job 26 and 7 says that God suspends the earth on nothing. Hallelujah. He just threw it out there. He spoke it into existence. And this thing we live on today called planet earth, it hangs and it rotates on nothing. Why? Because God said so. Hallelujah. Scientists didn't say it. Archaeologists didn't say it. God said it. And he hung it out there over nothing. Exactly what modern science later on 
revealed. We all believe today that it hangs out there on nothing, right? In addition, for centuries, men believed that the world was flat. You ever heard that before? Sailors would would refuse to sail beyond the Strait of Gibraltar into the Atlantic Ocean because they thought that their vessel would drop over the edge into nothingness. And they didn't sail that way. What did the Bible teach us? Isaiah 40, 22 says it refers to the circle of the earth. The circle of the earth. The Hebrew word rendered circle does not speak of a flat circle on a plain surface, but of a vaulted arch or a sphere. When you look at that word. And on and on you could go about the ways in which the Bible portrayed a world that was totally in, a, in, in agreement with what modern scientists understood and what they said. But, but what's even more impressive tonight is that the archaeological and the, and the scientific precision of the Bible is simply the integrity of the storyline within Scripture itself. I'm talking about where every little piece of information feeds into the main theme in amazing, amazing, amazing ways. Why? Because Because that's the order that God set it up on. Amen. We're not living on a world that's full of chaos. Even though we have chaos in it. When God created it, it was not chaotic. Everything had its place. Everything had its place. Some of you like to put puzzles together. I'm not a puzzle guy, but some of you are puzzle people. And you like those little bitty puzzles. You know I mean? The thousands and thousand pieces of puzzles. And you spread it out all over the living room floor and on the kitchen table. And you spend hours and days of, of putting those puzzles. I mean, you're intrigued by all those little shapes. It would bore me to death. I would, I would throw them in the trash can. That's just me. But you enjoy. Some of you enjoy that. But a puzzle is not complete if, if one piece is missing, correct? You may get everything else together. But if one little puzzle piece is missing, it's not there. It's not, it's not correct. Same way with our Lord. Same way with our world tonight. God created everything and put it into existence. He hung this earth on nothing. And he says, let it be so. And he also said, it is good. Amen. And so we know the Bible is true. We know the Bible is true. We started the message. I told you a little story about this guy in college. He was trying to see if there was discrepancy in the Bible. And how one of his professors challenged him. Of what he said that discrepancy in the Bible was. He said that it was a challenge that nearly robbed me of his faith. Robbed me of my faith. And this is what, he, this, is what this professor said. This professor told him one day, he said, look, I can prove that Jesus did not die on the cross. And that guy said it shook me. It shook my thinking. It shook my theology. And he said it interests me what this guy was talking about. He said he, he did not die on the cross. He merely fainted and later he awoke in the tomb. And he said I can prove it. He explained that when a person dies, their heart stops pumping. And gravity takes over. So if you were to die in your seats tonight, your blood would gradually drift to your waist and below. But on the cross, the Bible tells us that after Jesus died, a Roman soldier came and wanted to confirm that diagnosis and he pierced the side of Jesus with his spear. And you know what happened? The Bible says that blood and water flowed. Blood and water came out. But if Jesus was dead, the professor said, that blood should not have been there. He wasn't dead because it would have drifted down. It would have settled down. 
And that little guy said, that it bothered me, it shook me. And he said, when I thought about that, I went back to my dorm and I sat on my bunk and I explained to God that, that he had, co- had to come up with an answer for this challenge or I was going to just go sell insurance or something. I'm not going to be a preacher. I'm not going to go work for you. You've you got you to give me an answer. He said, normally I would go and ask somebody. He said, but that particular time, he said, I didn't ask anybody. I just prayed to my God. And he said, about a month later, he said, I was in another philosophy class and the class had ended and the professor was at his desk surrounded by some students he said I joined the group he said I was curious about what they were talking about and he said I imagine my surprise when the professor started sharing something about what he found out last weekend in his studies he this professor said do you remember what the Bible talks about Jesus dying on the cross and that got his attention he wanted to understand what this professor was talking about and he said do you remember when the Roman soldier come up and pierce the side of Jesus and blood and water came out. He said, boy, that really had my attention at that time. He said, there is something known as a cardiac tamponade. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's a cardiac tamponade. He said, the cardiac tamponade is a rare condition that occurs when a person is under so much stress that the heart literally bursts. Around the heart is a sac known as the pericardium and where the blood of the heart mixes with the fluid of the pericardium. It would look very much like a mixture of blood and water and the guy said you know that made sense on a couple of levels he said if I were to pierce your arm with a knife and blood would come out it wouldn't be blood and water it would just simply be blood and number two the Bible tells us that Jesus bore all of the sin of the world upon his shoulders and on the cross it also tells us that if it wasn't for it was not the cross that killed the Lord I don't know if you thought that I don't know if you've been brought up that way but let me let me let, let me just take care of some of your theology tonight. It was not the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet that killed the Lord. It was not the spear in his side that killed the Lord. It was not that that he hung up on the cross. When he died, the Bible said he called out with a loud voice and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the Bible says when he said this, he breathed his last breath and he died. In other words, he gave himself for you. Hallelujah. He gave himself for you. He did it because he looked down through the ages and he saw you somewhere that needing a Savior and that whereby you could come and give your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's shouting words right there. Hallelujah. If Jesus bore all the weight of our sins in his body and on the cross and suddenly gave up that control of his body, don't you imagine it would have been like a, a snapping rubber band? His mortal body would have been unable to stand the strain of guilt and sin. His heart could have easily have burst. And out comes blood and water. Did not the scripture say earlier that when he was in the garden, that he was under so much intense pressure and prayer for you, that his sweat became great drops of blood? <laughs> because they thought about you. Oh yeah, he prayed, Father, if it's, not, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Because from a human standpoint, none of us would want to go through that. From a human standpoint, I know we're coming up on Easter. And thank God for Easter. Thank God for resurrection. But before the resurrection, there had to be a death. Jesus had to go through a death. He had to go through a burial. But he said, Father, if it's any way possible, let this cup pass, but not my will, Lord. But your will be done. 
Hallelujah. Later on, this same guy that went to Bible college here, that, that was in this secular college, or he, he transferred out of the secular college and went to Bible college because, because he felt like he'd learned so much this truth, he's going to teach somebody something because he had learned some stuff. He was wanting to show off his stuff. He said, but of course, all those that was in Bible college already knew all of those things. He said, in fact, there was far more to this story that he had yet to discover. He said the professor noted that the, that the week of Passover, when Jesus was crucified, was one of the great times of sacrifice for the Jewish people. Think about this. The, in history, the talk about Passover worshipers would line up for blocks with their lambs for the slaughter. Get this in your mind. It was Passover time in Jerusalem. And they would come from miles all around with their sacrificial lambs. Their sacrificial beings. Their, their, their animals that they wanted to, to sacrifice. One estimate says there was well over 200,000 off, offerings on that day of sacrificial offerings. Can you imagine that? 200,000. Can you imagine if next Sunday morning we showed up here for church and 200,000 people would line the parking lot and line the street bringing a lamb for us to slaughter? That's what it would have been like. Think about that. 200,000. The gates of the temple opened up at 9 o'clock in the morning. And it closed at 3 o'clock in the morning. How many knows what time Jesus was put on the cross? How many, what time? 9 o'clock. How many knows what time Jesus died on the cross? 3 o'clock. Think about that. And so the temple gates were open from 9 until 3 on the days of sacrifice. That simply meant there was a whole lot of blood covering the altar, covering the floor, covering the utensils. How, how in the world, I don't know if you've thought about these things, but how in the world would the priest clean all of that blood and clean all of the stuff that was involved in sacrifice, sacrificing these animals? They say in the history books that they say that the temple had been built in such a way that water could be pumped up from beneath the temple floor and wash down the altar all around that altar and clean all of that and then they would drain the water think about this and get this implication in your mind they would drain the water out between, beneath the walls of the city into the Kidron Valley and according to the Jewish work the blood was often redeemed by the farmers think about this to fertilize their fields and I'm told that the banks of the Kidron Valley and when you look at pictures you can see some of them that they're still red from centuries centuries of sacrificing these animals and if you'd been standing there on that day outside the city of Jerusalem during the days of Passover during the days of, of sacrificing and you'd been standing outside one of those gates to where those pipes was in the Kidron Valley sometime around 3 o'clock or after 3 o'clock in the afternoon what do you think you'd see coming out of the pipes it would be nothing more than blood and water from the cleaning of the thing can I remind you one more time Jesus Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary so that you and I might be saved. You and I might have deliverance. And the Bible said when they pierced his side that it come forth blood and water. Amen. Amen. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying this book right here is full of truth tonight. It's full of accuracies tonight. Amen. And it will lead you to the place you need to, you need to go. Hallelujah. What's more impressive and anything else about this to me is that this incident is only recorded in the book of John. Now, you think about this with me. You'll not find it in any other Gospels, but in the book of John. And here, here's the thing. John, John is not even all concerned about the reference to the blood and water. 
He's not concerned so much about that. All John is concerned about proving is that to, to, to his listeners and readers is that there was no need for the Romans to break the bones of Jesus because he's already dead. That was his big reference. He was already dead. No sacrifice was acceptable to God if, if bones were broken. You know that from, from reading the Old Testament. It had to be pure. It had to be spotless. No broken bones, any of those things. So that was what John was trying to get us to understand. So John was trying to explain why the Romans did not break the legs of Jesus. Broke the robbers on each side, but not the legs of Jesus. Why? Because he's already dead. And the proof of Christ's death was that the Roman soldier, the Bible said, pierced his side and blood and water flowed out. John was there. John had seen it for himself. The issue of blood and water was just a side comment as far as he was concerned. But he's still there and he still witnessed what took place. But God. But God placed that reference there. He placed that reference there so that one day we would realize this powerful, powerful understanding and powerful teaching. We would also understand and see how intricate and how wonderfully interwoven God's word is to you and I tonight. It's a powerful thing, powerful thing. It's not something a mortal man could invent. It's not something you and I could have written. It could only come from the mind of God. It can only come from God. John 17 and 17. Now this is exactly what you'd expect from the book that Jesus said was truth. He said Jesus prayed that God would sanctify them by the truth. And he said your word is truth. Hallelujah. Read it one more time. I want you to sanctify them by your truth. And he says Lord your word. Is truth. What? Your word. That Bible that you bring to church every Sunday. His word is true. That scriptures that we put up on the screen every week. His word is true. Amen. You've heard me say this before. But if I could go to page in my Bible. 731. And if I found a scripture there. Sister Marilyn that I knew that was inaccurate. That was no good. That was not right. I might as well throw everything away. Pastor, you're not not serious. Oh, yeah, I am. Because there's nothing in here that's infallible. There's nothing in here that's inaccurate. It's all truth. It's all accuracy. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. And it teaches us good things. It teaches us wonderful things. And it leads us on the path that we need to go. Amen. Hallelujah. But let's go on a little farther. And then I'm going to close. There's something even more deeper in Jesus' words in in that verse of John 17 and 17. Talking about sanctify them by the truth and your word is truth. Hallelujah. For the Bible is far more. The Bible is far more than just truth. It's far more than just a history book with some interesting stories. I'm just like you. I get up every morning and I'll get in and I'll get my Bible out and I'm in the Old Testament now and I'm reading. And I'm doing this chronological reading of the Old Testament. And there's things I come across and I'm thinking, Lord, why? You ever done that? Why, why, why did this happen? Why, why, why did you set up that kind of rule? Why, why did you do this? Why, what, what, was the, what was the point to this thing? And you've got to understand that it's far more than just a history book with, with interesting stories. The Bible has the power to sanctify us and to make us live a more pure, more holy life. That will be some great discussions when we get to heaven and we sit around the throne or we sit down by the, by the crystal sea and we just get to talk to Jesus for a little while. Uh, but I've come to understand probably all the questions, Sister Ruth, that I have tonight ain't going to mean nothing when I get over there. I'm just going to be in awe of everything that God has prepared for me. Hallelujah. How about you? Hallelujah. Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 and 12. 
He says it this way. He said the word of God is living and active. (laughs) It's living and active. He said it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividings of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Hallelujah. Now, I don't know, I don't know what that tells you, but, but what that tells me is, is when I come to church and my worship, when I begin to worship the Lord and the Lord begins to examine my worship, He penetrates my heart and He sees if my worship is accurate or if it's inaccurate. He sees if my worship is the way I need to be worshiping Him out of, through, through my love and obedience to Him or am I worshiping God based upon I want somebody to think, uh-oh, that I'm a holy guy. I'm a holy woman. I pray my prayers like the Pharisees and the Sadducees sometimes to be heard of me and not necessarily heard of God. Matter of fact, if you go to Israel tonight, they still get up in those towers and they say those prayers and you can hear it echo. They microphone those things. And I, I enjoy listening to the prayers. But are they praying the prayers because of their love to God or are they praying the prayers because of who they are and their stature in their religious organizations in that, in that day and time? The Bible says the Word of God is living. The Word of God is active. It's sharp. That's why sometimes it cuts. I don't know about you, but I don't like being cut. I've been cut before. I've laid flesh open where you had to go get stitches. We've, we've, many of you have already have done that before. I've cut it with saws. I've cut it with knives. I've cut it with just messing around. Just cut it. Stitches here, stitches there, right? We've all been there. Don't like getting cut, but the word. Talk about the word. Sometimes it cuts. It lays our spirit open at times. And when the Lord begins to cut us, sometimes it's not pleasant. I love O.E.V. Hill. One time we was in service with him and O.E.V. Hill said, Tonight I'm going to preach a word and it's going to cut you. He just told us up front, I'm fixing to cut you. But he said, don't worry. Because tonight we're going to pour the oil in. And there's times that the word, it has the power to do just that. It has the power to cut you open, but it has the power to pour God's anointing back in and, and heal it back up again. Amen. Hallelujah. I, I appreciate what these girls said tonight when they come up. You notice, you notice what they said? Said, I fasted and prayed before we went on this meeting. I wanted to receive something from the Lord. Now here's the thing about, here's the danger about fasting and praying about those things. It could have been God was going to take them to that place and going to cut them. Why? To teach them something. To show them what God was trying to, to say to them and to lead them into the future. God filled one with the Holy Spirit. God give one patience. God saved some. God showed up in a mighty, mighty way. And those things that they felt and, and experienced over at Winterfest, why does it have to be different here? Amen? Why does it have to be different at home? Why does it have to be different anywhere? It's the same God that we serve. Hallelujah. He's an active God. He's a live God. He's a real God. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand when you're around, I don't know how many, how many kids was there? How many people was there? 15,000? When you're around 15,000 young people, you're talking about energy. Good Lord. And when you're around 15,000 young people that's worshiping and singing songs of praise, 
Some of, some of us deadheads. We, we might be in the room and, and we get to standing there and we're looking around and all of a sudden we get to. We may not even know that we're doing that. But because of the energy that's in the room, we. And before long, we liable to even get our hands out of our pocket. And, and we're clapping. And after a little while longer, we. Oh, it's been good. <laughs> and before long, we don't pay no attention to the teenagers in the room. We're just part of the heavenly host of heaven, praising God and giving Him glory and giving Him all. Why? Because there's a reason to give God praise. We serve a living Savior. We serve an active Savior. We serve a Savior that this book says He's for you. He's not against you. He's coming back after a blood-bought church. Are you ready to go if He should come tonight? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Bible is a living tool. It's as sharp as the finest surgical, surgical scalpel. It's, it has the ability to penetrate our hearts. It has the power to reach into our very souls and expose our hidden thoughts. It exposes our hidden motives and it lays bare open our sins and our excuses. But how in the world can it do that? Why? Because it's God's word. It was designed with you and with me in mind. It was designed to strip us of every pretense of being nice enough to buy your way into God's heaven. It ain't going to work, honey. Your works is not going to get you into heaven in every corner of scripture you see at the end the indictment in Jeremiah 17 and 9 he said the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who in the world can understand it and Romans 3 and 23 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God essentially tonight God says you cannot be good enough to get into the heaven but that's all right with me we don't have to be good enough I don't have to be good enough you and I can't do it so God done it by himself God sent his only begotten son and left his throne in heaven and he come down to live with little old man and little old woman and he died on the cross that you and I could have life and heaven more abundantly and that's why tonight we're able to shout hallelujah hallelujah we've been born again hallelujah we've been set free hallelujah we are going to heaven tonight why because the book says so. I didn't say it. You didn't say it. The book says so. Amen. Jesus came to die for sinners. He came to die for sinners just like you and me. <laughs> Michelle, if you will, if you come. Just, just the keyboard. Just, just the keyboard if you don't mind. I, I just want the keyboard uh, playing tonight. All we need to do is to follow the Bible's clear instructions that we belong to God. Now hear me tonight, church. We got to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We got to believe that He's the Son of the Living God. I'm not going to take time to read these scriptures. Go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. You'll find that. We got to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Got to believe it. Acts 3 and 19 said, so We got to believe that we are a sinner in need of changing your life. We got to believe that we're a sinner. We've got to confess that Jesus will now be our Lord. We've got to confess that he'll be our master, according to Romans 10 and 9. We've got to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, according to Acts chapter 2. And then we've got to live for Jesus with all of our hearts. 
We've got to live for Jesus according to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. There was a, there was a minister that, that related how his brother had been a guy that, that would have nothing to do with church. Wouldn't have nothing to do with church. He was the kind of guy that preferred the, the, the party life. He enjoyed the drinking. He enjoyed the party scene. He, all those kind of things. And, and drink after drink after drink after drink. He was, he was a salesman, they said, for a, for a lumber company called 84 Lumber. 84 Lumber. And not only, not only did he drink at meetings, but he, when he went home, he drank as well. One day, though, this brother was in a fast food restaurant. And this is what he said. This is a true story. He said that there was a guy that approached him. That had a, he was a tall guy that had, a, had a, a long black trench coat and scraggly hair. And he said, I, I, I just knew it was a beggar looking for a handout, he said. I, I knew that's who, what it was. Instead, he said, it turned out that the stranger asked if he could give him something. And the brother said, sure, you give me something. And out of his trench coat, this stranger took a witness Bible. And he said, I want you to read this. And gave it to this guy. The brother said, quietly, he took the Bible. Later at home, he began to read it. And while he began to read it, he got, got convicted by what he read. As this particular Bible, this witness Bible, advised him to turn from one page to another. After he got through this page, it tell him to go to this page, go to this page. And he went from one page to another reading those underlined scriptures that the, this so-called beggar had underlined for him. And the final reference shook him. He said it was found in this reference Bible on page 84. And he said, it, it just dawned on him all of a sudden, he worked at 84 Lumber. And he realized that God was some way, somehow trying to get his attention. And he said he ended up pouring all his booze down the sink and turned his life over to Christ. Why? It wasn't necessarily because of the so-called beggar that gave him the witness Bible. He was just being obedient. He'd done that, Sister Marilyn, because the God's word was true. And when you begin to read it, and when you begin to apply it to your soul and apply it to your life, sometimes it cuts. Sometimes it opens us up. But many, many times it'll heal and it'll correct and he'll put back together that that was broken when we read it and look at it in such. I've come to tell you tonight, church, as the same thing I've had for the last three weeks, that God's not dead. I know we live in a, in a world where we have a lot of political correctness going on. I don't, care, I don't care what they say or what the naysayers may say or what the, what the psychologists may say or philosophers may say. This book is still one of the top sellers in America today, all over the world. It still outsells everything that, that is published today. You may be a, a book fanatic, and you, you may have a, a library full of books, but it still will not top this one. It would do some of us good to go back home, dust it off, and pick it up and read it all over again. Study it. Look at it. See what the Lord is telling us in His Word between these pages. See what the Lord is speaking to you. Because here's the thing, I could read the same scripture that you do, but God could speak a total different thing to you than he does to me. 
I'm often amazed when I go and read the scriptures. Sometimes I look and something opens up, Brother Keith. I said, wow, that's, that's interesting. And then I look back at the scripture and say, Lord, I've read that a thousand times. Why didn't you tell me two years ago? Apparently I wasn't ready for it then. But God to show up and God to speak those truths. God is not dead. He's alive tonight. He's alive. And his book, his book. You know, a lot of times we have these authors that will write these best-selling novels and best-selling books. And Sister Deborah, they'll write a second one to go along with it and a third one and all that. But I never, God ain't never wrote another book other than this one. Why? Because it's enough. It's enough. You can buy book after book of self-helps. You can buy book after book of how to lose weight. You can buy book after book of how to treat your head to grow hair. All you want to. Some of them's good. And then you'll get a second the, the second edition and the third edition and it's almost like you, you can't get the hair that you want or whatever because you've got to buy the second edition and when you go and get the second edition you read all of that you can't do that until you buy the third edition I've not read any of those as you can tell but this book this book is enough hallelujah this book is enough in whatever area that you may be going through in whatever area that you're dealing with tonight, this book will help you to get there. It'll help you to overcome. It'll help you through those situations if you'll just apply this book and the instructions of this book to your heart. The Bible is not inaccurate. It's accurate. The Bible is full of truths tonight, not lies. Not lies, but truths, not errors but truths, truths. Amen? Well, Sister Michelle, play softly. This is the way I want us to close tonight. I want as many as will to come around these altars tonight. I just want you to just say, Lord, you may be, you may be an individual that you sort of, you, 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 you're like, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not condemning you. Please don't, don't misunderstand me. You may say, Lord, I just don't understand the Bible. I just, just don't understand. I, I, I get it down to read, but there's just some, a lot of things I just do not understand. And I want you to come and say, Lord, help my understanding. You remember the guy in the Bible when, when Jesus healed his, his son? And, and he come back and he said, Lord, thank you for doing that, but help my unbelief. Help my, help my unbelief. So there's times we have to pray to the Father, Lord, help my unbelief. Help, help me to understand. Help me to understand the things that I read that you're trying to tell me. Now, I don't have time tonight, but... You need to have a consistent Bible reading plan. You don't need to jump from this scripture to that scripture to this scripture because you're going to get confused, I promise you. If you've never taken time to read the Bible, then do this. Go to the book of John and start there. Go to the book of John and go to the book of Proverbs. Start in those two books. It'll teach you some stuff. John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and was God. Start there. That's a good place to start. And if you, if you can't read anything else, then go back and reread it again until God is teaching you and leading you into another direction. But Lord, help me. Help me understand. You may be somebody here tonight and you've taken up the scriptures and said, Lord, I understand it, but some of these things are just really, really hard to apply practically in my life. God, help me to understand what you're showing me today. 
oh yeah, I know it's been written several thousands years ago, hundreds of years ago and all these kind of things, but Lord, what does it mean to me today in 2014? What is it saying to me now? And Lord, help me to understand. Help me to follow what you're trying to tell us. Would you come? And let's spend a little time with the Lord tonight before we go. Hallelujah.